appreciate Brother Stedman. He's a retired pastor, but not really. Uh, he's really uh, serving missionaries, and he's a past- I call him a pastor of missionaries, but I also call him a pastor of pastors, uh, like me, that I can be mentored by him. We're just glad you're here, Brother Stedman. Thank you, Brother. It's Thank great you. to be with you tonight. Uh, what a blessing. Uh, I was thinking about uh, Brother Sosby's ministry in the public school. I was from an unchurched family. Uh, saved through the ministry of a denominational church in East Tennessee, and for a number of years did not know that I was supposed to go to church. And there was a Russian Jew uh, by heritage who came to Christ, and he was a missionary in the public schools of East Tennessee. And he was such an encouragement to my life during those years. And so uh, what is being done there is very important. And I appreciated that so very much tonight. Let's take our Bibles and go to Psalm 2, if you would, please. Psalm 2. Tonight, we're beginning uh, the connection of our theme uh, with this first message in the evening to the last message in the evening. Okay, I wasn't sure if that was my phone going off or something starting up there, but it sounded good. Uh, but we're going to be looking tonight at what I've entitled, Stand in Awe of God's Plan. And what we're discussing tonight, we will conclude on Wednesday night with a parallel theme, Standing in Awe of God's Person. Because you cannot separate God's plan from God's person. And then on Monday and Tuesday night, we'll be looking at more practical application of how that plan is worked out through the local church ministry. So tonight, Psalm 2. Uh, let's read the psalm. I'll read it. You follow along in your Bible. Uh, then we will pray and get into the text. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Father, I pray tonight as we look at this psalm of the King, the Lord, You would help us to stand in awe of Your plan And Lord, to recognize the role that you give us in that plan in exalting the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, I pray that you would speak to us and motivate our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. The poet Robert Browning wrote, God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. And I remember reading that poem and thinking, what planet is Robert Browning living on? God is on His throne, but all is not right with the world. 
As a matter of fact, we might be tempted to be more like a man who wrote a little limerick. You, of course, know what a limerick is. It's a five-line poem with a certain uh, meter and a certain rhyming sequence. And this is what he wrote about our human condition. God's plan made a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled all his chances by sinning. We trust that the story will end in God's glory, but at present the other side is winning. And that is true. You know, you look around you and righteousness is not prevailing in our land. We are the great hope of the planet as far as the freedoms that we have enjoyed as a nation, and yet righteousness is losing in America tonight. Yes, God is on His throne, but all is not right with the world. As a matter of fact, our world is in chaos as never before, and as dispensationalists, we understand that it is only going to get worse and worse until Christ returns. So what is our response to be in standing in awe of God's plan? How can God have a plan with all the mess that we're in? That's the point. And yet God does have a plan. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are very interesting. In the, uh, the canon of Scripture that includes the Psalms, uh, they have been ordered uh, historically as the first two of the Psalms. And so, so we understand that they're very unique in their relationship in beginning this book. It's interesting that Psalm 1 begins with how blessed or oh the blessedness or blessed. Psalm 2 ends with the same word, blessed, in Hebrew. Psalm 1 ends with a threat. Psalm 2 begins with a threat. Psalm 1, the godly man meditates on God's law. And Psalm 2, the wicked man meditates on how to cast God off. In Psalm 1, the theme is the contrast between the righteous and the wicked person. In Psalm 2, the contrast is between the rebellious of the world and the overruling sovereignty of God, God's plan. Psalm 1 consists of two stanzas and six verses. These are songs, you understand. And Psalm 2 is twice as long, consisting of four stanzas and twelve verses. This psalm, penned by David under inspiration, has been called the Psalm of the King. And it clearly, clearly, based on what the New Testament says, portrays the victory that is in Christ Jesus. And we must understand that we stand in awe of God's plan in this psalm. The psalm has both a natural and a poetic outline of four stanzas, each containing three verses. Originally, the verses, of course, were not in the text, but those have been supplied, but four stanzas. Uh, and there are four different voices in the psalm. You may not pick these up from just a reading of the, of the English text, but there are clearly four verses dictated by the Hebrew text and also by the context. The first voice is the voice of man. The last three voices are the voice of Trinity, as God sets forward the plan of Christ. So let's begin with man's rebellion unleashed. This is the voice of defiance by the world. Why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. 
What we have in this text is a composition of the world united against Jesus Christ. There are four entities given to us in these three verses, and we would not know what those four entities were if we did not have the book of Acts. Now, we can figure out some of them from the context, but unless we knew the New Testament teaching, we might be a little, a little fuzzy on what is being said. But in Acts chapter 4, in that text where Peter is responding to the persecution of the early church, he tells us exactly what is happening as he comes back and reports to the church concerning the growing persecution. Let me read an extended passage. You see if you can pick up the four groups of people that are identified for us here in Psalm 2. Acts 4.23 And being let go, they went to their own company, this was Peter and John, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, Thou art God, which hath made heaven and earth and sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of Thy servant David hath said. Okay, he's going to begin quoting now. Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. For to be done whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Peter and John and the church are saying that God in eternity past, which by the way is part of the text of Peter's message on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, determined ahead of time that there was no other way of our salvation other than the shedding of the innocent blood of Christ. And now the church has been birthed and persecution has arisen and things seem to be going off the rails for the Christians at Jerusalem. But God's people rejoice because they know God has a plan. And that plan involves the heathen, the Gentile nations, the people consistently in the Old Testament, that is Israel, the kings of the earth, that would be Pontius Pilate and Rome, according to Acts 4, and the rulers, the rulers of Israel, Herod and Annas and Caiaphas. And these groups together compositely uh, attacked and put Jesus on the cross, and they crucified Him. But it was within the plan of God. <clears throat> now, it's interesting, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches on Pentecost about that Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, that's God's plan, he doesn't exempt the people who murdered Jesus. Peter says, and you by wicked hands have crucified him. Folks, here's the balance of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God had a plan, but man was wrong in murdering the Son of God. You say, I don't understand that. Welcome to the club, that mystery of the divine balance. But here in Psalm 2, the psalmist David, under the pen of inspiration, said, there are going to be people in the plan of God who are going to rise up and murder the Messiah. And yet, God is in control. 
Now, he tells us why this is going to happen, this conduct of this world against Christ. Uh, there is fierce opposition. Why do the heathen rage? The word rage means to assemble tumultuously. It is the idea of what they did at the cross when they gathered and yelled, crucify him. They had an opposition of imagination, the preoccupation. The people imagined a vain thing. They thought they could get rid of God by killing Jesus. And it says they set themselves. It was an unchangeable opposition. Do we understand that it was very early in the ministry of Christ when the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests determined to put him on the cross? They set themselves. They took counsel together. In one day, the Scripture says, Pilate and Herod were made friends at the crucifixion of Christ, even though previously they had been at enmity one with another. Why did they do it? They said, let us cast away the bands. Cast away the cords. It's very interesting. In the Hebrew language, the word bands and cords are instruments of slavery. Now, folks, you think about what that means. In the context, the Jewish people blasphemously at the cross cried, We have no king but Caesar. What had King Caesar done to the Jews? He had put them in bondage. But they didn't want King Jesus. They said, we want to cast away his bands and cords. It's like slavery to us to submit to Jehovah God. There we see the perversion of the world. Folks, Jesus came in love to seek and to save the lost, but they viewed him as a horrible slave taskmaster because they did not want someone to deliver them from their sins. And they chose instead a true slave master, Rome, so that they could keep their sins. That is the perversion of the world who imagine a vain thing. They imagine that, that right is wrong and wrong is right. They imagine that their sin is blessedness to them. And they think that God is against them. It is a vain thing. It is folly. It is wickedness. But that is the cry of the rebel against God who does not want God to rule over them. You know, so the heathen imagined a vain thing. They thought they could get rid of God, and they put him on the cross. And then, of course, something happened. He rose from the dead, and they, they, couldn't, they couldn't keep down the message, and the church was born. And then Rome decided they were going to persecute the church, and Rome decided over centuries that they would wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. Did you know in the country of Spain they have found two monuments to one of the most wicked Roman Caesars, a man by the name of Diocletian. And he put up these two monuments thinking that he was exterminating Christianity. Let me read the inscriptions of these monuments that they found lying in the dust in the country of Spain. Monument number one, the Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Herculeus, Caesares, Augusta for having extended the Roman Empire in the west and east, and for having extinguished the name of Christians. The inscription on one of the monuments. The other monument read, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Herculeus, Caesareas, Augusti, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ, for having extended the worship of the gods. 
Today, Diocletian dies. He, he is buried in a tomb and his bones are lying in the soil of the Middle East. His soul is tragically in hell. But Jesus Christ is alive and His church moves forward. Why did the heathen imagine a vain thing? Because they thought they could get rid of God and you can't get rid of God. So we find in this first stanza, man's rebellion unleashed against God. The second stanza is the voice of God the Father. And that begins in verses four, uh, verse 4 and goes down through verse 6. And this is God's plan in which we should stand, of which we should stand in all, God's plan unaffected. And this is the voice of derision by the Father. This is God the Father speaking by David's pen, by inspiration. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Who? These people who think they can cast him off and cast off his anointed Christ. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. You see, God's perspective relating to the world who rages against Him is a giant, as, as if He were a giant sitting above a bunch of little ants who are pinching at His feet. He sits and He laughs. As a matter of fact, the, the structure of the text here, uh, where it says that He shall have them in derision, the word derision is a term of mockery. It's actually, in the Hebrew, the idea of mocking someone who speaks a different language. I, I don't recommend doing that, but that's what the word means. So let me illustrate it a couple of ways, what it means. At, at Mount Carmel, when Elijah had the battle with the prophets of Jezebel and Baal, you remember how they, they leapt onto the altar and they were cutting themselves and they were crying out and nothing was happening. What was Elijah doing? He was mocking them. That's the Hebrew word. He was deriding them. He was saying, what's the matter? Is your God on a journey? Is He on vacation? Maybe you should yell a little louder. And they're doing all of this and He is mocking them because it's total futility. It's a vain thing that those false priests were doing. But one commentator gave, I think, a better definition of this word deriding. He said it's like a tall adult with a long arm holding the head of a child who is mad at him. And that child is swinging for all it's worth against the adult, and the adult is laughing while the child can do nothing. Folks, this world is raging against God. It is putting up its fists. It's swinging for all it has. And it thinks it's accomplishing something to get rid of God. And he that sitteth in the heaven laughs and he holds them in derision. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, Before God, man's anger rises as a giant wave only to dash and die on the shore of his omnipotence. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. But he doesn't just laugh. Notice what it says. Yet, he says, have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. We'll talk more about that in a moment. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me. You see, God is speaking. He not only who sits in the heaven laughs, but He speaks to them in verse 5 in His wrath. He uses His Word to go forth and utterance, and all He has to do is speak. 
and the world will be destroyed. You remember when Sennacherib came down against, the Assyrians came down against Jerusalem? And Rabshakeh stood forward, the spokesman for Sennacherib, and he stood there to the people on the wall and said, don't let your king Hezekiah make you think that you can be protected from, from Sennacherib. Your God is not big enough. And Hezekiah spread the letter out in the temple. And in one night, God simply spoke. And the Assyrian army, 185,000, were destroyed. That's exactly, but on a far greater scale, what is going to happen when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation period to establish his earthly reign. Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus comes back and this world has gathered against them in a satanic attempt to overthrow him at last, he will have the sword of his word going out and he will speak a word and the worlds will be brought under his judgment. God has a plan, and we stand in awe of that plan. He will vex them in his sore displeasure. William Plummer wrote in 1867 about the, it's a very lengthy quote, I won't take the time for it tonight, uh, about what happened to the 30 Roman Caesars from the first century until the time of Constantine in the third century, the 30 Caesars who opposed the New Testament church. And it's very interesting, all of them died in some way under the judgment of God. Isn't that interesting? These wicked rulers who thought they could overthrow God, somehow God judged all of them. Some of them only, only lived a year or two uh, and came under the judgment of God. But one of them, very famous, was known as Julian the Apostate. He was, he was Caesar. He was the, the absolute power of Rome. And he derided Christ in the church and he called him the Galilean, and he just would blaspheme the Galilean. One day, Julian the Apostate pointed his dagger to the heaven, and he challenged the Son of God, that Galilean. Within a short period of time, he was wounded in battle. And as he was lying in his own blood, and it was clotting around him, he gathered up in the, in the moment of his death, this is Caesar, this is the man who's the most powerful on the earth. He gathered up his clotted blood in his hand and he cast it to the sky and he said, Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. He understood that Jesus was the God of gods and ruler. Folks, we have a declaration. God has a plan. Then notice the third stanza. We've seen man's rebellion unleashed. It's the voice of defiance by the world. They want to cast off his cords and his bands, but it's a vain thing. We've seen God's plan unaffected. God has the voice of derision. But now we see, thirdly, Christ's program revealed, and it is the voice of declaration by the Son. Now, what we have in verses 7 through 9 is very clearly Christ speaking Back to the Father, as the Father has made the decree. Look at verse 6 again. He says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. God has a plan. It will come to pass. We know it as the end times, the book of Revelation, the plan of God for the ages. Then Jesus, the voice changes. Jesus picks up in verse 7, I will declare the decree, the Lord. 
Jehovah. He's speaking to his father. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, that's Christ, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So Christ here is making the decree. He is taking the scroll that God has ordained, that God has set his king upon his holy hill of Zion, and Jesus is reading the decree from the Father. That decree acknowledges Christ's position as the Son. Now, we need to understand theologically when the Scriptures say, This day have I begotten thee, that is not talking about Christ being born of the Virgin Mary. It's not talking about that kind of begetting. It is actually a term that refers to the placing of the Son as the heir to the Father. So this is talking about Christ being the eternal Son, but there will come a day when Christ will receive everything in the inheritance that God has promised Him. He is the only begotten of the Son. John Phillips in his commentary addresses this issue of the only begotten of the Father in this way. He says, Jesus was eternally the Son of God from everlasting to everlasting. He was and is incarnately the Son of God when He came down to the Bethlehem stable to be born as a man among men. He was manifestly the Son of God when He came back from the dead in invincible power, and He is gloriously the Son of God as God's own chosen King. So the concept of His being the only begotten is from eternity past to eternity future, and there will come a point where He will receive as the Son of God the Father all of His inheritance. Now you think about inheritance. I suppose all of us would appreciate getting a good inheritance. But what if your father owned everything? What if your father owned everything? And he was going to give you an inheritance which he had declared, which he had promised to you. What would that inheritance be? You say, well, maybe it's all the gold in the universe. No, it's not that. Maybe it's all the diamonds and all the jewels in all of the created universe. No, it is not that. Notice what this decree says. God the Father said to God the Son in eternity past, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. Did Jesus ask the Father for that? Absolutely. We know that from his teaching and his life. We know that from John 17, the high priestly prayer of the Son of God. Jesus asked the Father for his inheritance, which would be what? The heathen. You see, the Jews had this concept that the kingdom of God was only Jewish. And one of the reasons they wanted to kill Christ was that he was, he was bringing forward that all men could be saved. He was healing the leper. He was raising the dead. He was bringing the Gentiles to himself. And they hated him for that and for many other reasons. But Jesus asked the Father for the heathens and for the uttermost part of the earth for his possession. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered where the uttermost part of the earth is? 
Now, we know from the New Testament, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Christ went back to heaven, that New Testament commission of the church in Acts 1 by the angels. We know of that story, but Christ said to them before they went back, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, what? Into, Judea, into Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and what else? The uttermost part of the earth. This is a reference in Acts 1.8 to this text. So have you ever wondered where the uttermost part of the earth is? Now, in the context of both David writing this and also Christ saying it in Acts chapter 1, they were speaking at Jerusalem. So both in the Hebrew and the Greek, the uttermost part of the earth means that point on our planet that is the furthest from Jerusalem. So let me ask you a question. What is that point? Have you ever studied it out? I confess to you to my shame. It was about 20 years ago the first time I thought, I need to find out where that's at. I love history, so I got out uh, my history notebooks. This is 20 years ago before you could Google it on the Internet. And uh, I started doing some research, and I found that if you do the opposite Jerusalem on the other side of the planet, it is near what we know today as Tahiti. It's in the, the southern Pacific Islands. And actually, it's a small group of islands called the Tubai Island Group near Tahiti. It's very interesting that some of the early missionaries like William Carey wanted to go to Tahiti. I don't know if they understood from that leather map he had made on the wall that that was the uttermost part of the earth, but nonetheless, he ended up in a different place in, in India. But eventually, the gospel made its way to Tahiti. There was a, an English bricklayer named Henry Knott who was associated with William Carey. And Henry Knott got under the burden to take the gospel to Tahiti. And in the late 1790s, he sailed to Tahiti and preached the gospel and planted churches there. And in about another 20 years, he and his associates made it out to the Tubai Island group, which is the uttermost part of the earth, and there they planted churches. Folks, let me ask you a question. Why did it take 1,800 years to get the gospel from Jerusalem to the uttermost part of the earth? There could be a lot of reasons for that. But as you know today, you and I can get on a plane and we can be in the Tubai Islands within 24 hours. There is no reason today in this generation that we cannot go to the uttermost part of the earth today and win people and make disciples and plant churches. Christ is building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Christ has asked of the Father, give me the heathen and I want the uttermost parts of the earth. And you and I have the privilege of being a part of that prayer by Christ being answered. He is receiving his inheritance. So this application is in two forms. In the age of grace, Christ is made the head of the church. That is an application of receiving the heathen and also the uttermost parts of the earth. But there is a forward view that we'll talk more about on Wednesday night, and that is during the millennial kingdom when Christ shall rule over all the earth for a thousand years. And though it is not clearly seen in our text, the age of grace is there. We'll actually see it in the next voice. 
But in this voice, we see the millennial kingdom, verse 9. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In that millennial kingdom, when Christ rules this planet, and I'm looking forward to that, there will be rebellion still, but Christ will crush it and righteousness will rule because He is King of kings and Lord of lords. God has a plan. And we should stand in awe of that plan. But then we come to the fourth and final stanza. We've seen man's rebellion unleashed, the voice of defiance by the world, God's plan unaffected, the voice of derision by the Father, and Christ's program unveiled, the voice of declaration by the Son. But now we come to the fourth stanza and the third person of the Trinity, God's invitation unfailing, the voice of decision by the Holy Spirit. And here we see shadows of the age of grace, the church age, the great missionary age. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Now, who are the kings? The Gentiles, the unbelieving nations. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. That certainly could allude to those Jewish leaders who were in authority. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the way, when His wrath is kindled but a little. O blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Notice who the Holy Spirit is instructing. He is instructing leadership in the realms of government. He is instructing those who have the responsibility of making righteous judgments. And, of course, we know that in our world today, that by and large, unsaved leadership is not making right choices, and judgments are going against the people of God. But the Holy Spirit is pleading. He is wooing. He is asking for leaders to be brought into a right relationship with, with, the, with the king. He's, he's pleading for judges to have the wisdom of God. How does it happen, folks? In the age of grace, by the gospel. It happens by, by missions. That's the way the world will be influenced. That's who he's instructing. And what is he instructing them to do? He's instructing them to surrender their minds to Christ, to be instructed by what? The words of God. Discipleship. Teaching of the Word of God. He's instructing them to serve Him with their hearts. Verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Here's the balancing of worship and service. Fear and joy being balanced. Folks, fear without joy is despotic slavery. Joy without fear is disrespect and presumption. This reverence for God. So we're to come to God with our hearts in worship and service, fear and joy. And then in verse 12, all men are to submit their wills to Him. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Now, what does it mean to kiss the Son? The Son is Jesus Christ. It is the concept of the word worship. Now... The Greek word that is most commonly translated in the New Testament worship is proskuneo, which literally means to kiss the hand toward. And that's the concept, though this is a Hebrew word that's translated here, but it's the same word for the New Testament word translated worship. In the Oriental culture, when the king would receive a subject, he would hold out his signet ring, and the person would come in bowing and submission and adoration would kiss the hand 
toward. That is proskuneo, that's translated worship in the New Testament. And here it is kiss the sun. Now, I have, this is my wedding band. My wife is from New Mexico, so I have a, a New Mexico-type wedding band. If I was the king and, and you were to come to me as a subject, you would kiss this ring. If I wanted to hum- humiliate you, I would take the ring off and put it on my toe. And you would come and bow down and kiss my toe because you needed humiliation before the grandeur of the king. That's what this word means. Folks, we are to bow in understanding that we are sinners, that we're lost, there's no hope, and we bow to Him, and we trust Him, and we receive Him as Savior, and we worship Him. We kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and our, we perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. It is worship and service of Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit says, Oh, blessed are all those that put their trust in Him. You know, folks, there is nothing more wonderful than the blessedness of having your faith in Jesus Christ. I was raised, I was telling someone before the service, I may have shared my testimony before when here. I was raised in an unchurched family in Tennessee. My folks were good Bible Belt people, but they didn't go to church. They didn't read their Bible. They didn't pray. Uh, I started smoking when I was five, taught by my older brother. I gave it up at eight because of what the Puritans called uh, provenient grace. Uh, I, re- I was really realizing how wretched a sinner I was. Uh, I was a wicked little kid. And when I was ten years old, headed to hell, a man came by my house with a station wagon, a precursor to a church bus, and invited me to vacation Bible school. And I went and heard the gospel. And I responded, and I trusted Christ, and I was gloriously saved and changed. And God, by His grace, has led me. God gave me a wonderful Christian wife. We have three children who know and love Jesus Christ, and we have our sixth grandbaby on the way. And those grandbabies are being trained for Christ. Oh, the blessedness of those who do what? Simply put their trust in Him. I have an older brother who is unsaved and far from God, and his life could not be more radically different from mine. What's the difference between the two Stedman boys? Jesus Christ. You see, God has a plan. If you'll kiss the Son and receive Christ, and you put your trust in Him, all the blessedness, not just for time, but for eternity. And we ought to have joy in that. We ought to have blessing in that. But you know what we do? We listen to talk radio, and we listen to C-SPAN, and we listen to everything else and what the heathen are saying in rage against God, and we get discouraged. And we get our eyes upon a system that has totally already been defeated by the power of the resurrection in Christ, when we should be focusing on Christ and His glory and His plan. God has a plan. And oh, the blessedness of those who put their trust in Him. I have one minute, according to your pastor's kind calculating of time. Let me just read. I love history, and I love this person I'm going to read about. Richard the Lionhearted of England was born a leader of men, a general, a fighter, a wrestler, a runner, a poet, and the courtliest knight who ever put on shining armor. He was 32 when he came to the throne. He led the Third Crusade, determined to take to the east the most powerful and best equipped army, 
which had ever crossed the seas. But while he was away trouncing Saladin, his kingdom fell on hard times. His chancellor abused his office and rode roughshod over the people. And Richard's brother John, if you've ever seen Robin Hood, you know about bad John. Richard's brother John plotted to seize the throne. John was selfish and cruel, crafty and cynical, lustful and false. He had none of the Plantagenet good looks, was irreverent and blasphemous, devoid of wisdom, and knew nothing of statecraft. When news came to England that Richard had been imprisoned and was being held for ransom by his old enemy, Leopold of Austria, John was delighted, this wicked brother. He entered into the treasonable correspondence with the king of France and planned to seize England for himself while the people suffered and longed for the return of the king. But Richard's coming was delayed. Then one day Richard came. He landed in England and marched straight for his throne. Around that coming, many tales are told, woven into the legends of England. John's castles tumbled like ninepins. Great Richard laid claim to his realm, and none dared stand in his path. The people shouted their delight. They rang peal after peal on the bells of London, crying, The King is back! Long live the Lion, the King! And one day a greater than Richard will come to planet earth. King of kings and Lord of lords. Seven years before that day, you and I, if we are alive, will be raptured up to be with Him. And if we are in the grave when He comes, for that rapture, we'll be caught up with those that are alive. For seven years, we'll be with Him in glory. And then we will come back on Wednesday night to this subject. And we'll talk about the King returning in great glory, because it's all about His person. Folks, we have the privilege of standing in awe of God's plan and being a part of the greatest drama of the universe in Christ taking out a bride for Himself from the heathen to the uttermost part of the earth. So let's get our eyes on the King, and let's stand in awe of His plan for us. Let's bow our heads.